All views and opinions expressed in this podcast may lead to learning. All information provided is for educational and developmental purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for a growth mindset. Before taking action, please consult your motivation. This is the Teacher Talking Time Podcast. Flow is a state where someone is entirely focused on an interesting or enjoyable activity that one can control and that is adequately difficult, neither too easy nor too difficult. It's generally better, or at least it's more likely that an activity will generate flow if it's not a activity with like a right answer and a wrong answer, but more of a problem-solving activity that we have to like do something. For example, and a, a type of activity that I love in language classes and I adapt to different languages and levels is planning an event, planning a trip, planning a party, planning a work event. Planning whatever. I only give them very basic criteria of like the purpose of the event and the type of information you have to include. But other than that, I don't tell them anything about how they have to plan the event because I don't want to limit their creativity. Research generally shows that there's no way to learn to use a language other than to use the language. I'm just wondering, actually, is it possible that the concept of flow not only applies to, to learning, Chris, but also to teaching? Absolutely. Teachers can be in flow. It's good for as far as learning is concerned when teachers are in flow because a couple of studies have shown that flow is contagious, that students can notice that the teacher's in flow, that the teacher is really into it, and as a result, they get really into it. I have in my notes here a hypothesis that you had that or a flow being the balance between anxiety and boredom and that's where retention happens do you still believe that and can you elaborate on that a little bit Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Teacher Talking Time podcast. To those of you who are new, each episode of our podcast is devoted to bringing the most recent, most innovative, and most insightful research applications into teacher education, language teaching, and language education. And if you are also new to our Learn Your English community, I have to tell you more about our new Teacher Accelerator program which is our online program for teachers all around the world who want to eliminate lesson planning, reach and help more students, teach less, earn more money without, of course, sacrificing work-life balance. Our programs help teachers reflect and develop in the most important skills they need to succeed in the information age. And it's just like your teaching isn't for everyone, our program isn't for everyone everyone. It's for someone. The program has four pillars of successful design. We have a community, we have live sessions, we have self-paced learning, and more importantly, we have lots, lots of feedback. Does this sound like you? Are you a teacher who wants to implement dogme and task-based learning in your teaching? Do you want to eliminate lesson planning? Do you want to help more students, but also work less? Do you want to transition from selling your time, teaching one-to-one, to actually focusing on outcomes and selling results? Do you want to be a business owner 
and not an employee? And more importantly, do you want to build and scale your teaching business? If this sounds like you, then you have a great opportunity here. Just head over to our website, learnyourenglish.net slash schedule and book a meeting with us. For today's episode, it's our pleasure to welcome Chris Jacobs to the studio. Chris is an assistant professor of French, Italian, Spanish, and linguistics at the University of Nebraska, teaching courses both at the undergraduate and graduate level. Chris describes his approach to teaching as task and project-based. In pedagogy classes, Chris aims to help teachers and teachers-to-be to develop their own personal styles, to apply theory to practice, and to model effective teaching strategies. He is currently working on projects exploring the optimization of learning through flow, the subject of this episode. And flow is a state of deep focus on an enjoyable activity that is at once challenging and accessible. The project explores improving motivation in distance learning through task design and increasing motivation and learning through contact with target language speakers. With all that said, let's dive into the show. All right, uh, Chris, a uh, big welcome to the show. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. It's my understanding that I could welcome you in up to seven languages. Uh, is, that, is that the case? You speak, or you're proficient in seven additional languages? I don't know how you define proficiency, but I can tell you that English is my native language. I'm from Pennsylvania in the United States, and I'm some days more or less comfortable in three other languages, French, Spanish, and Italian. And I can sometimes stumble my way through Portuguese and German. So you can interpret that as you want. I'm not very good at anything with numbers, so I don't even know how many languages that is without going back and count. So yeah. Better than me. Better than me. I'm, I'm stuck at two. So I do English and Spanish, and that's about it. You know, as we prepare for the show, we do a little background information. We do a little bit of research. We read that you written in your bio that you discovered that you said that one must connect with the language and practice it in real world ways to develop proficiency. So we'll talk about what you think proficiency means in a second. Um, but in your, your experience, you say this is most likely to occur through authentic interactions in the target language. Is that your secret to learning the four or five languages that you speak? And how did you, how did you arrive at that? Yeah, I pretty much learned to speak any of the languages that I kind of know how to speak through having real everyday conversations with people who speak those languages. I've had all of them, all of them? No, all, 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 all of them except Portuguese uh, in school at least a little bit. And yeah, the classes I took uh, gave me some sort of base, like some sort of insight into the structure of the language, a little bit of vocab, but even the best classes didn't really help me to communicate, to speak and understand as much as having real conversations as you would with friends uh, in those languages have helped me to learn. So really, I think that if you want to learn to speak a language, whatever that language is, there's absolutely no substitute for learning to speak it than to actually speak it. And making mistakes are part of the process. I know people might not all agree with me, but my opinion is that it's far more important to be understood than to 
to say things perfectly because mm. people are going to understand you even when your grammar ain't no good. You understood <laughs> what I said, even if some people would say that's not quite right. So case in point, the message is what's important. To throw the example around of if you go into a coffee shop and you want to order coffee and in, in the first example, the only word in English you know is the word coffee. So you go into the store and you go up to the cashier and you say coffee. You're quite likely to get what you want, probably. But if you go into that same coffee shop and you know all the words except for the word coffee, it would be a quite more challenging to get what you want and a lot more grammatically involved uh, to order what you want without using the word of the thing that you want. That's exactly right. But there are strategies for talking around the words that you don't know or that you forget. And heck, that happens to us even in our first language. And I think it's really important that the students learn these like avoiding strategies, these talking around word strategies for when they have those little gaps in their knowledge. For for everyone listening who, who may not know, Chris and I and Leo, we all met what seems like we're talking before the show. It seems like a decade ago because there's been a whole pandemic in the middle, but it was only really three years ago, uh, almost to the day, I believe it was in August of 2019, where the task-based learning uh, and teaching conference was in Canada that year. It was in Ottawa, and we met, and we attended one of your talks. I don't know if you did more than one talk. I don't remember, but definitely you did one, and we were fascinated by what you were talking about, because for me, I was quite unfamiliar with the concept. I know Leo uh, and Mike are familiar with it, but we had become more familiar with it after you know we kind of shared our notes from what you were talking about. And you were talking about the concept of flow and flow in learning and, and flow in second language learning. And at the time, you know, I remember I was checking my notes actually yesterday from, I took notes during that, that, in that talk. And you said that there had been limited or, or very little research in terms of language acquisition in terms of flow, but lots of research on flow in general. And I guess we'll dive in here and see if that's changed or not. But really first, maybe you can just walk us through, you know, what, what flow really is. So flow is a concept that was first created in psychology in the 70s to describe moments when people are really, really absorbed in whatever they're doing. And it wasn't even developed for an educational context, even though the guy who developed it, it was a Hungarian guy named Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. I think I pronounced that kind of close. I don't know Hungarian at all. But anyway, I'll take your word for it. Okay, what uh, I, I don't know if you should or not. But anyway, he he created this thing in, in 1975 to describe these moments when people were just really absorbed in an activity, and later he applied it to educational co context. But to the best of my knowledge, he never specifically applied it to language learning uh, context. But in any case, no matter the context, be it an educational context or not. Flow is a state where someone is entirely focused on an interesting or enjoyable activity that is just the right difficulty that's neither too easy nor too hard over which that person has control, that they have some autonomy, some say over how they do the activity. So flow is a state of focus on an interesting or enjoyable activity that one can control and that is adequately difficult, neither too easy nor too difficult. Okay. Okay. Do you have an example? Is it possible to 
talk about an example of when forget language teaching for a minute just in in life when we may be most susceptible to coming into a state of flow yeah for each person even though flow looks about the same when you observe it when you see someone in flow the activities that cause it are different because we don't all have the same interests we don't all have the same abilities but in any case the times that anyone is most likely to experience flow is when that person is doing his or her favorite activity, an activity that that person just really loves doing. For me, this might sound really weird, but an activity that I really love doing is eating. And another activity that I really <laughs> love doing is conversing with people. And when I'm doing one of these two things, and probably other things too, I'm just so focused on this activity that I am not paying attention to anything else. And as a result, I'm in the flow. And an activity, when I said it's interesting or enjoyable, it doesn't have to be fun. It just has to be an activity that we see some purpose for doing. It absolutely could be fun. And fun activities often do generate flow. But I can also be in flow when I am working really, really hard to answer my boatload of work emails. I don't find that fun, not whatsoever. <laughs> but I do find it relevant and necessary. As I find, as, So I'm focused on doing this task in the moment. And as a result, I'm in the flow. And even same when I am uh, grading, like grading my students' projects or homework or whatever it might be, or when I am uh, crunching numbers for research. I don't have a numbers brain at all. I'm a people person. I don't like numbers. But at the same time, I see that this is something that's necessary and pertinent for the research thing I'm working on. So I'm really, really focused on it because I see it as necessary. So we can be in flow when we're on something, working on something that we see as interesting, enjoyable, or honestly just necessary. Nice. Is it, you know, I mean, we have like, all of us have these experiences when we're doing something and I'm just going to see if I, if this is what a state of flow is or if this could be sometimes and not always. But, you know, when you look at the clock after a certain amount of time, it feels like it's been like five minutes, but probably been like an hour. Was I in flow during that, during that activity? Likely, yes. Likely, well, likely, yes. Because if you didn't realize how long the activity was taking, you probably were really focused on that activity and nothing else. That's how, that's how students feel every day. Well, maybe not every day, but often in my language classes. I mean, it's just such a vibe. We just, we, we just have so much fun and the time just flies. That's right. It's called the the times the times fly time flies factor, right? Like exactly. They, they get the break and they're like, "Whoa, it's already ten thirty! Wow, time flies!" Right? You're like, "Oh, that's a good sign." Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That that means that they were probably in flow, or if not, they were at least in some other good place. It's all good. Is you know, I'm all these memories of of the conference and your talk is coming back to me because I remember why I was so captivated by this topic. I'm going to make an assumption. I'm going to assume that I'm wrong, but let's let's find out. Well, that's the spirit. Assuming you're wrong. Let's assume you're right. <laughs> I'm assuming that this is not something that we can actively control. So I can't say, I'm going to sit down to extend your example and answer all of these work emails and I'm going to get into flow as I do it. Or 
am I wrong? Is there something that we can do to kind of help ourselves along in achieving that process of achieving flow? I don't think you can say to yourself, flow, 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 and expect to get yourself into the flow. At least that doesn't work for me or anyone I've talked to. But yes, you can have some impact on getting yourself into the flow. First of all, by choosing activities that get yourself into flow. And beyond that, and this is especially pertinent with the ones you might not love, by doing what you can to tune out any distractions. Like emails are necessary, but I hate answering emails. I love talking. I hate reading and writing in any language. So when I need to do a whole bunch of emails or when I need to do a whole bunch of number crunching or writing for, for, for research, I need to find a way to tune out all distractions, be it by just wearing headphones that cancel out the noise, be it listening to white noise, uh, be it uh, shutting myself in a little room like I am now. And no, I'm not in any danger. This is what I do to work. Don't worry, you don't need to send anyone to rescue me. But yeah, you can affect your own flow by first choosing an activity that gets you into the flow. And beyond that, especially when it's something that's necessary, but not necessarily too fun or interesting by minimizing distractions so that you really get focused on that activity. Does that make sense? I sometimes often say things that don't make sense at all. And I need to be told that they don't make sense at all. Yeah, I think it totally makes sense. And I think certainly, like, like you said, the environment matters a lot, right? Like really tuning out what's around you. But Chris, it's funny because when you were speaking there, I was thinking sometimes like just getting started, right? So, so think about your emails, like just starting and say, okay, I'm going to just let myself work for one minute. And soon after that one minute, you're kind of, you're kind of in the beginning of the early stages of flow. And then that one email leads to another, which then kind of leads on to something else. And I think for many language teachers, um, they might assign a task and the students are quiet at the beginning, right? And they kind of panic, but really it's more or less like, us kind of creating that environment, I find, where we're like, no, come on, guys, let's get started, right? Like, let's, let's just, just get started. Start with a sentence, start with a word. Maybe they're creating a list. Like, the key thing I find is in with the environment, in a classroom environment, is encouraging the students just to get engaged with the task at a very kind of surface level, and then just kind of see where it goes. Um, and I just think back to, like, my own email checking, and I think you're right, like, these tasks that are difficult and unpleasant, you just really got to kind of force yourself to get into it and then see where it goes, I find. Yeah, exactly. I just tell myself, CJ, sit down, shut up, work on the emails, work on the grading, whatever the unpleasant but necessary task of the day is. The only context I remember, you know, thinking about this or considering flow was what I guess most people call runner's high. You know, when you go jogging and you're running. And for me, I almost never get there because I'm a terrible runner. But in theory, people get jogging and the first few minutes your body's warming up or whatever. And then you just, you just go. And before you, you know, it's been 10 minutes, it's been 15 minutes, but maybe it's been 25 minutes, maybe it's been an hour and you just feel like you can just keep going and keep going. Um, so runner's high is, I guess what, I mean, that's just what I call it. I guess that's what people call it. But flow basically exists everywhere, which is really, really cool. Really, really fascinating. What, what brought you to it, Chris? Like what, what interested you about flow to bring you into this area of research? I discovered it through a professor when I was doing a master's in French teaching. And that professor was doing research on flow before I had his class. I had never, ever heard about flow. And 
he just did a lesson on it one day and I was like, wow, this is interesting. This like really describes what I have personally experienced with language learning and with learning other subjects for that matter too. And I didn't really, to the best of what I can remember, have much of a research agenda at that time. So it was just something that I decided to grab onto and run with and I'm still working on it. Nice. And then, you know, bridging that gap as we narrow our focus here to language learning itself and flow and language learning, how, I wouldn't say if, because we know it does. So how does it, how does it happen in a language classroom? You know, as Mike kind of described earlier with that example of getting it going, but how, how does flow one, I guess, in your opinion, how does it help the language learning process? Let's start there. And then, and then number two, you know, how, what can teachers do to kind of create a conducive environment for flow, I guess, is, is the follow-up question. So flow is useful in language learning or learning of any subject whatsoever because flow does not cause learning in itself, but it creates conditions that are good for learning. Like, first of all, in order for someone to be in flow, that person has to see a reason for doing the activity. And when you see a reason for doing the activity, you engage in that activity and you focus on that activity. And people in language learning research debate what you need to focus on. But pretty much everyone says that you need to focus on something, whether that would be meaning or form or some combination of the two. So flow is useful for learning because the interest creates engagement with the activity and also focus. And that focus then creates uh, intake and uptake that you basically suck the information in, though, of course, to actually be able to use the information, to be able to use the new words or new structures that you encountered, you do have to actually speak them and write them and use, and use them actively. But anyway, that is basically why flow is good for learning. And every student is different because students have different experiences, different interests, different skills. But we can say that certain categories of activities are more likely to generate flow for students, for language students, than other categories of activities. And among those activities are activities that are student-centered instead of teacher-centered, which means that students uh, have some degree of control over how they complete the task, over how they do the activity. And that is likely to be the case when we allow the students to work either individually or in small groups, as opposed to in a full class. There's nothing dangerous to full class activities. They're honestly necessary sometimes, like to go over the directions to model activities, uh, to review activities. But from a flow perspective, it's probably better to spend more of the class time in small group or individual activities than it is in whole class activities so that the students can have more control over how they complete the activities. And also going with that, it's useful on the student-centered end uh, if we allow the students uh, some freedom to choose like how they, do, how, how they do the activity, not just the speed, but like the topic and how they approach it. And that leads us to 
a second characteristic of good flow activities, which is that they be open-ended, that they have many possible uh, answers or outcomes, and that they're, they not be the type of activities that I remember doing a lot as a student in school, not just in language classes, that there was one or maybe two or three set correct answers that you had to find. So it's good to have, uh, to, to have uh, activities that students can truly take in a direction that they find interesting, that they find the uh, correct uh, difficulty level so that that activity is actually good for them, useful for them, and they as a result will focus on that. And it's also useful uh, for a class activity, a language class activity to be authentic as opposed to inauthentic, meaning that the activity is focused on meaningful communication, on bridging an, inf an information gap, be it in, spe in speaking or writing, rather than on simply uh, regurgitating facts, rather than simply producing display knowledge. And lastly, and honestly, perhaps least importantly, but it can still be useful, is that an activity be competitive, that students be uh, trying to compete against uh, each other uh, in, in, as individuals, as groups, or even against themselves to try to do better than someone or better than, or better than themselves because competitive activities are really good at focusing attention on the goals that are required for winning the activity. So to sum it up, there's essentially, in my opinion, and research would support this for useful characteristics for an activity, for a flow generating activity to have, which are that the activity be student-centered, that the students can control the means of completing the task, that it be open-ended, that there be many possible answers or outcomes, that it be authentic, focused on making meaning, on bridging an information gap, and also it can be useful but not required for an activity to be competitive, that students are trying to do better than other students or groups of students, or even better than themselves uh, to complete an activity. And it's not really necessary that a flow generating activity belong to all of these uh, categories, but in general, it seems that the more of these categories a given activity belongs to, the better. The more likely an activity is to generate flow if it belongs to three or four of those categories than if it only belongs to one of those categories. But again, every student is different because people have different interests, different experiences, different abilities, different, different skill levels, which of course mean that people get flow out of different activities. So we're probably, as much as we would want to, never going to find any one activity that generates flow for all of our students. And realistically, we probably need to, when we can, choose the activities that are gonna generate flow for the most possible uh, students at the same time, while also uh, providing something for the students who might find flow in totally different uh, contexts so that they can get something out of the class and feel like they are being listened to and as a result get into that positive mindset that open that open mind growth mindset that's necessary for language learning or any learning for that matter to occur i know that was a big response to a <laughs> little question that's what we do. That's what this podcast is all about. That's why we have 
nine hours of, of recording tape that we could use. <laughs> well, hey, it's um, better to have too much than not have enough, right? <laughs> when you're talking about, sorry, Michael, just really quick, and then you, you can jump in. Uh, about right, like a task having right answers and wrong answers, that, that really caught my attention because I know what you mean, but we're not talking about like a grammatical right answer, a grammatical wrong answer. And what are the what are the characteristics? Although it could be, but one of the characteristics that I had written down when I was preparing was about having, you know, a task provide, or as the students are performing a task, doing a task, is having it provide clear information about how well they're doing the task. And we talk a lot about feedback in language learning. And generally speaking, when we talk when we use the word feedback, we're talking about the teacher providing feedback to students, which is amazing, of course. But in this case, the task and the flow with the students having the expectations of how it's supposed to go, there is feedback for them in terms of if they're doing the task correctly or, or incorrectly without the teacher kind of intervening, if I'm understanding that correctly. And that allows them to to gain flow or go deeper into flow. Is that would that be would that be fair to say? Yes. They they say that it's necessary to have some sort of feedback in order for the students to be in flow because students need to have something to keep them on track so that their mind and their behavior uh, doesn't wander too much. And that feedback can come from the teacher, but it doesn't have to. It can come from their peers. It can come from themselves, potentially. It can come from the task itself, like if you're uh, completing a task with physical objects, that there's only certain ways to use them, or if you're doing something on a computer that the computer, like not everyday computer task, but language learning computer task, where the computer tells you that you're right or wrong, those are definitely ways of feedback. And it's true that this feedback doesn't have to be like right answer, wrong answer, but it just has to tell you that you are on track to completing whatever the goal might be. And in the case that you're not as on track as you might hope to be, that the feedback kind of redirects you a little. And as, as we've said, it's generally better, or at least it's more likely that an activity will generate flow if it's not a activity with like a right answer and a wrong answer, but more of a problem solving activity that we have to like do something like, for example, and a, a type of activity that I love in language classes and I adapt to different languages and levels is planning an event, planning a trip, planning a party, planning a, uh, I don't know, a work event, plan, planning whatever. And I only give them like very basic criteria of like the purpose of the event and the type of information you have to include. But other than that, I don't tell them anything about how they have to plan the event because I don't want to limit their creativity. I want them to plan the best uh, end of school year parties or best spring break trips that they possibly can without my interfering. Because honestly, if I were to tell them exactly how to do it, the results probably wouldn't be as fun as what they as what they come up with because they wouldn't have as much freedom to let their creativity run wild and to do things that are interesting to them. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. All right, and welcome to another interview with uh, Teacher Accelerator member and Jessica Diaz. Thanks for joining us today. And thank you for inviting me. When you have only one 
101 lessons, one-to-one, there's a limit. You're going to have a limit of students. And even if you have like 20 students, that's too much. You're going to be overworked and overwhelmed. That's not something that I wanted. I'm not leaving school to be overworked with something that's going to leave me trapped again. That's, that's the thing of having your online course because you can be at the beach selling your course. This being overworked took, took a toll on my mental health. So I was like, I want to have time to go to the gym, to spend time with my family, with my friends. And I wasn't able to do that. I wanted to help more students. And I also wanted to have more time for myself and also to develop myself as a professional because I wanted to read more. I wanted to take other courses. There's so much things uh, in the TAP course. Hey, everyone. This is Andrew from Learn Your English. Thanks for listening to this episode of Teacher Talking Time. We work hard to produce a show that's theoretical, practical, and hopefully interesting. But, you know, not everything fits into a podcast format. And we've been working hard behind the scenes on something that we're excited about. And we hope you are too. And we're happy to share it with you right now. But first, let me ask you a few questions. Number one, are you a teacher with your own business? Number two, are you looking to grow that business? And number three, are you interested in doing that quickly and overcoming common pitfalls? If so, we have a new free 120-hour training that might be for you. You know, we've worked with hundreds of teachers over the years and have seen them stumble on common obstacles when it comes to business. These obstacles cause delays and stagnate growth to what would otherwise be a successful operation. And now we're happy to say that we've developed an email course to help you overcome these challenges so you can see growth in your business right away. This is a step-by-step email training to help you overcome the five obstacles that we've seen prevent most teachers from building their business successfully, whether you teach one-to-one or groups or don't have your own business yet. In this course, we look at things like business mindset, dogma ELT and materials light teaching, attracting the right kind of client, crafting your offer, and an essential business model every teacher should use. With this, we've helped hundreds of teachers to overcome these, and now you can do it as well. To begin, just head over to our website, learnyourenglish.net slash obstacles. Once enrolled, you'll get an email from us every day for five days with strategies, tasks, and actionables to use in your business immediately. Plus, at the end, there's a little treat from the three of us. So once again, head over to learnyourenglish.net slash obstacles and get started with this free 120-hour course and see growth in your business in just five days. The link to that is also in the show notes. And now, let's get back to the show. Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Angela from Columbus, Ohio, and you're listening to Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. Yeah, no, I just wanted to jump in because I actually had a couple of thoughts come to mind. And, and wow, yeah, this format of the, the nine-hour format, Andrew, is, is definitely working. Yeah, yeah. No, no, Chris, as I was listening to you, I was thinking a couple things. So I think you just kind of touched on a point you you um, mentioned earlier, which was, Really, the activity needs to be about the the person's lives, right? The students' lives, and like when you're, yeah. I'm listening to the ideas for activities you just listed. These are everyday events that we all live and experience, right? And the other thing that I kind of heard when you were speaking there was like you could; those are not level specific, no. right? So, so you're you're challenging them, right? You're engaging them um, at some level, but really, where they take it is is very much up to them. So, if you're a 
a lower level student and you're asked to plan a party, you're going to use all your resources possible to do that. Um, and you just kind of guiding from the side or allowing them to do that. And then of course, adding more focus on forms and stuff, focus on form later and, and, and whatnot. And I just, it was interesting because a lot of people want, like often ask like, um, how do we achieve that mixture of challenge while also making it achievable and enjoyable and fun? And I, I, just, I just thought the activities that you listed there were quite good. I don't know if you had any more to add or, or thoughts on that. I, I probably have a, a, a few more activities that I've, that I've done in language class. Let, let me just think about the classes I'll be teaching uh, really, really soon. School here starts next week. I'll have a French one, a, a French A1 level class. And some of the things that we would do in this class would be back to school shopping. I mean, it's the, it's the beginning of the school year. So we're gonna go back to school shopping for school supplies and on a different day, uh, back to school shopping for clothes. And we are gonna have to get clothes for different occasions. We're gonna have to get clothes uh, to go to class, to yes. go to your job or internship, to go out with friends on the weekend. And when I do these kind of activities, like the trip plan, the trip planning too, uh, I don't just tell them, oh, we're going to do it. That's the end of it. No, I try to give a little bit of a competitive element. Like I, if we were going back to school shopping for clothes, I would be like, you're going to work in a small group, two to four people, and you're going to come up with four looks for four different occasions. And you're going to put together uh, slides that you can show us with pictures of the things that you're going to buy and what they are and how much they cost and you're going to present this to us and we are going to comment on it and ask you questions if we have questions and at the end we are going to decide who did it best we're probably not going to watch everyone's presentation because that would be really long and probably really boring but we are going to maybe watch three or so and we are going to decide who did it best and why so i like to when i can add a little bit of a competition and even if it's not a, a, a competition at least a little bit of a decision like which one do you prefer or which one do you not prefer something like that that gets them thinking about what they're seeing and has them really like process it and take it to the next level rather than be like oh good good presentation next no yeah, they yeah. actually have to really think about what's going on yeah or like make it like a little reality show right where like oh it's all about who can look the best on the the smallest budget or something like that i've right? done like, that too but 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 really like getting in like but those are things that they all experience right these are all real word it's there's authentic authenticity to these activities which um which, you know, uh, thank you, like in, in like the background readings that we had preparing for this seemed like a, something that was really important, right? Because you want to make sure they're invested in the language, invested in the task. Um, and I think that's something you can achieve with, with all levels, like as you mentioned, even first beginner level French. Yeah, absolutely. It's probably a little bit harder in beginner levels than in higher levels where students have a lot fewer linguistic resources but that doesn't mean that it can't be done and in my opinion it should be done and it must be done i shouldn't say must because i hate telling people what to do as i hate being told what to do but i think it's really really useful because research generally shows that there's no way to learn to use the language other than to use the language and if the goal is to be able to 
speak a language in a regular everyday conversation, or if the goal is to be able to uh, complete certain tasks, find an apartment, go grocery shopping, uh, plan, plan a party, sign up for classes, you have to actually practice doing those things in class because doing verb drills all day, every day is not gonna prepare you for that. And I can tell you that because I see plenty often students who come to college with four years of language in high school and that they basically only did grammar and they are not prepared to speak. They are not prepared to do real world tasks in class or out of class. So it's really, really important if we want our students to use language in real world ways outside of class, that we get them to use language in real world ways in class. And it's gonna generate real English or real language, isn't it, Chris, right? Like, like yes. you're, you're, not gonna, you're not gonna find, I wouldn't be caught dead wearing that in any textbook, right? But, no. but you might, as I spill my coffee, but you, you, you might hear that. Um, in this type of activity, right? Like this is the type of language that's going to naturally emerge, much richer probably, right? Exactly. And, and, and speaking of that, I am okay with my kids learning any kind of language whatsoever. I should probably have my kids aren't kids per se. They're, they're, they're college students that are officially adults. And I'm okay with them learning literally everything because my theory is you have to learn how to say what you actually want to say in real life life so if you're curious about thing just ask and we'll tell you and i'll even directly teach them slang i don't mean like mean things or rude things or insulting things but just like familiar language that you would use among friends that is probably not insulting to anyone but is definitely not typical textbook language if you know what i mean yeah like preparing them for their communities right which is really all we all we want to do is, is support sure. them as they try to enter their kind of future selves or whatever you know exactly like we don't want them to just be able to say if they, if they like something oh that is very good that is excellent no <laughs> i know these words are kind of regional regional in english and maybe and sometimes even my nebraska kids because i'm not from nebraska i'm from pennsylvania don't recognize them but we need to teach them to say like the type of things like yo that's dope that's lit that, that, that that's popping that's baller what that's hype whatever whatever people say in your English speaking or French or Italian or whatever language speaking community, because these are what people actually say. And even if the student doesn't want to talk that way, everyone has their own way of talking, the student at least has to recognize these things because they're going to hear them. We have to get ready to use or to at least understand real language. And yeah, we can have like moments that we directly teach them vocabulary, but it's best if we can provide authentic opportunities to learn that to see these words or phrases in, in context and then to use them in context too. We don't want to hyperbolize anything, but that marriage of flow and tasks or task-based learning, you know, the flow theory kind of originated around the same time as TBLT was kind of up and coming, so to speak. And we don't want to say this is the best way, this is the worst way. We don't want to you know, polarize everything. But there seems to be a clear marriage between state of flow and language learning and doing something meaningful or that's real world. Or, you know, chicken and the egg, the opposite. Doing something real world and meaningful and then being in a state of flow. You mentioned some anecdotal evidence about your own students and coming from grammatical syllabi backgrounds in high school. And we know that those those kids are not the only ones who experience that, that research supports 
that coming out of you know high school scenarios and school scenarios where as we talked about off the top you know they don't have a lot of opportunity to actually use the language in that target language that they're trying to to acquire is it too strong of a statement to say that that flow and task-based learning and therefore language learning more broadly like they are a marriage they, they do go together I think they go together extremely well because there's many, many definitions of task-based learning, but what I would define it as, as is simply doing activities that have a clear communicative or real-world purpose that aren't just uh, doing this for language learning sake, but actually doing something real. And that is pretty much exactly the definition of authenticity, which is one of the, in my opinion, key components or, or, or rather key uh, characteristics of a flow generating activity. So I would say, yeah, even though they weren't invented task-based language teaching uh, and flow to go together, they absolutely go together very well. Something that is a communicative task, provided that the students find it interesting and relevant, is very likely to generate flow, much more so than traditional grammar activities are to generate flow. There's a lot of articles and studies as well of, of students ranking activities that they felt were the most engaging or exciting or with the idea of trying to gauge, did they get into flow? Did they not get into flow? How reliable do you think is asking students those kinds of questions? Like, did you enjoy this activity? Did you not do this activity? Having them rank an activity. Um, certainly, there seems to be some value in that. How, how, how strongly do you feel about those kinds of surveys? I think that it's one way to measure flow, but I think that it's useful to combine it with other ways of measuring flow, which is sometimes more feasible than other times when doing a actual research study. But anyway, if we were to use a questionnaire, I've seen studies like this. I'm not sure that I would ask or would only ask them how much they enjoyed an activity because something that is not fun, but that's relevant or necessary is also likely to generate flow. So that does not necessarily capturing the whole picture. I might ask them like how useful or interesting did you find this activity and maybe combine it with how focused were you uh, how much control did you have? How how well do you think the level of challenges matched your ability or skill level? I might ask it that way. Though it would also be useful in theory to like combine that with uh, data from observing people in flow or through asking them in a open-ended way, be it in writing or in an interview, how they felt and what happened during a specific experience. So I say in theory, because we don't always have access to all this information and we don't always have time to collect all this information when doing a, a study like a research study, but ideally it would be good to have all of this information. And ideally it would be good to collect the uh, questionnaire data or the interview data really, really soon after the students do the activity so that they hopefully remember as much as possible of the activity rather than collecting info all the way down the pike, which is not necessarily an issue in itself because it still helps you to find the best and the worst activities. But 
act, but memories of activities are probably not going to be as clear uh, weeks or months or years down the pike as they are minutes after doing the activity. Got it. Got it. The million dollar question for me. Right, are you going to give is, me a million dollars? Yes, please. If you answer it correctly, I will. Andrew, I'm Andrew, Andrew, under promise, over deliver. What was what's the <laughs> Canadian dollars? It's okay. Also, <laughs> oh, fifty cents. Dollars. That's okay. <laughs> but I'm not sure about the answering correctly thing because what an what a, what a what a question with a set correct answer be very flow generating? I don't know. True. Touche. 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 <laughs> Online learning, Chris. Since we met at the conference three years ago, things have drastically changed. Not that online learning has been invented, but it's much more prominent and much more prominent in language learning circles. Um, is there any research? And if not, you know, how do you feel flow happens or doesn't happen the same way or equally or, or not at all as it does in uh, an in-person learning classroom? Yeah. Yes, there is research on that, though not as much as we might like. And I am working on something that should hopefully at least be sent to somewhere within a few weeks to at most a couple of months. And basically what I find and other people find is that the same activity characteristics are relevant, equally relevant in online learning. And there's one other characteristic that I would add or specifically emphasize in online context, which is interaction. And interaction, I mean, mostly to be peer interaction, that the students are interacting with each other, be it in real time or be it uh, through writing or videos not in real time, so that they feel some sort of connection, which is important in uh, real in, in online learning. And also interaction with the teacher is very important also because they need to, again, feel like that they're connected to the teacher, that the teacher's there to help them, that the, that the teacher's accessible. But that interaction with other students, with peers is extremely important. And that's the version of it that I used in my study that I'm finishing. Though, honestly, in a future study, I might add a specific other category about interaction with the teacher, which is also important. So basically, the same kind of activity characteristics, student-centered, open-ended, authentic, maybe competitive, and also interactive are what is important for an activity to generate flow in an online learning context. Mm. You just mentioned teaching there, and I'm just wondering, actually, is it possible that the concept of flow not only applies to, to learning, Chris, but also to teaching? Absolutely. Teachers can be in flow, and it's good for as far as learning is concerned when teachers are in flow, because a couple of studies have shown that flow is contagious, that students can notice that the teacher's in flow, that the teacher is really into it and as a result they get really into it so that's not going to happen all the time the activity still has to be a good activity uh through the lens of those categories we've talked about like for instance let me let me give you an example of something that happened to me so much uh, as, as a student that definitely didn't get me in the flow i had plenty of teachers and professors in all levels of school who would spend the whole darn class, sometimes as long as three-hour classes, classes that were supposed to be that long, I don't know whose idea that was, where they would just talk, talk, <laughs> talk, 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 
all the stinking time, there was not much student participation. If any of the students had no control over the task, they were just like sitting there like a bump on a log, like a blob, just in the teacher's mind absorbing information, but that's not how learning, how learning works. And even if the, the instructor was really, really in the flow given uh, giving his, his lecture, most of the students, and definitely me, I was a bad student, but definitely were not in the flow at all because they didn't find this useful. They didn't find it interesting. It, it wasn't student-centered. It wasn't open-ended. It was just information vomit on them. So yes, if the, if the activity is otherwise good for good for learning and flow, teacher flow helps student flow, and the other way and the other way around. But the teacher just lecturing, lecturing, lecturing is in most cases not going to generate much student flow at all. It sounds like it goes beyond classroom management. Really, it sounds like it's all about like what you said earlier that really struck me as um, uh, showing that you're kind of into it as well, right? That that you're actually with them in the moment trying to figure it out and, and kind of live in the task with them is is equally important which i think andrew's quite interesting because where we used we used to be teachers all at the same institution actually we used to all be we used to be a team of teachers um andrew leo and i and we would share activities with other teachers and it was funny because we always kind of experienced great um buy-in and flow within our classrooms but then someone else on the team would do it and they'd have the almost exact opposite result and i but I, I, we kind of had this hunch that it, it maybe it did come down to what you just said. Maybe it's because we were just so into it with the students and kind of um, really kind of focused on it that that maybe that's what it, it is. Wasn't. It wasn't just setting up the task and having them do it. It's it's like the buy-in was was created perhaps by our own attitude. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. If we go into a class being like, oh, this is this is boring. This sucks. Blah blah blah. The students are probably going to think the same, but if we uh, go into the uh, into class, be like, oh my gosh, this is going to be so much fun. This is going to be great. You're going to love it. This is useful because blah blah blah. blah. You're going to learn how to do blah 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 that you're going to have to do in real life. Then maybe hopefully uh, you'll have a little bit more buy-in. I know that I can sometimes be uh, a little overboard in this way that I get really excited uh, really easily, and they don't always buy into it. But I at least think it's better than me being like totally bored and disengaged when which, in which case they would definitely not buy in at all. Right. Bored is an interesting word because you said that, you know, tasks or to achieve flow, it doesn't have to be fun or exciting, but it has to be important. No, but it can be. But does it, if it's important, does it mean it also cannot be boring? Can, can there, can, can flow and boring go together? And by definition, no. But I would definitely say that it's most important for a task to be seen as relevant in order for it to generate flow. But you're right that when, when, when people say that, like the theoretical people, that a flow generating task is not boring, that, may, that maybe doesn't capture the whole thing because like answering emails is boring, grading is boring, but it's necessary and you can kind of get into the flow sometimes under under the right conditions when you when, when you do those things but i think in language classes it's ideal that we focus on the stuff that's interesting even if it's not fun 
it should be also, something that's relevant well, should be interesting in my opinion like if it's relevant to me it might yeah, not hopefully. be like doing yeah, your taxes yeah. right it's not define that as a fun yes. activity but it's relevant it's important and what can i do and you know so i could see myself hypothetically because i have not experienced this but hypothetically getting into flow doing taxes because while it's not an overly exciting activity it's super important and it would be very relevant to, to me. Or like analyzing a text, right? It might not be like that thrilling of an activity to do, but as Chris said earlier, perhaps if you're showing like, hey, let's let's look at this introduction. Like, I really want to see like how this introduction's organized. And oh my gosh, did you just did you see that? Do you see that right there in the second sentence? How they transition into a problem? Like, like, right? And then all of a sudden, perhaps it this analyzing this research introduction, uh, turns into a an, into a jigsaw like a puzzle like a something to discover right yeah yeah for sure but on the surface it's quite boring yeah yeah i think the teacher excitement helps and i think it also helps if the teacher makes it really clear what the purpose for doing the activity is so the students are like why are we doing this junk but they could be like oh we're doing this so that we can be able to do blah 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 when we're out in the real world outside of class yeah, and I think, you know, students are clever, right? They know when teachers are BSing and killing time, right? Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, as, as I do plenty often when, when, when I teach <laughs> or attempt to teach. Just looking at, just to, oh. not to, one more question on this and I'll, we'll move on, I promise. But I was looking at my notes from, from your talk, Chris, a couple, a couple of years ago, and I have in my notes here, which I find very interesting, that you mentioned a hypothesis that you had that, or a flow being the balance between anxiety and boredom. And that's where retention happens. And I thought that was a very interesting statement, very interesting hypothesis. Do you still believe that? And can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yes, I still believe that, though I might use slightly different words. We definitely can't be overly anxious, at least not in the sense of debilitating anxiety that gets us like all torn up that takes us away from the task if we want to be in flow if we want to learn optimally though at the same time a little bit of facilitating anxiety as some people call it is okay and perhaps in some cases even necessary because it keeps people going it helps them to do the task it's it's better than apathy than not caring and it's definitely better though than uh, debilitating anxiety that takes away from doing the task. So, to be in flow, you, you you can't be you can't be in debilitating anxiety. That's definitely true. As for boredom, maybe I would instead now use the word disengaged. You can't you 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 can't be disengaged, and you can't be experiencing uh, debilitating anxiety. But yeah, the board is a little hard because I guess it kind of captures what we want it to. But if we say you can't be bored, it also leaves out the possibility of, I would say, boring, but possibly necessary activities like uh, paying taxes, generating flow. <laughs> well, it goes back to, you know, I like to say in my classes that adjectives represent opinions, right? So what's boring for one may not be boring for another. So like you said earlier, a task that we're doing is hard to be universally flowy, I guess we can say, because half the class may be really flowy, into it. I like that. And half the class may not be. Hey, I'll confess. I've heard my students say that. 
oh, this is really boring. I've admitted. I said, listen, I know this is boring. And then students will say maybe in the next sentence, but it's but it's necessary. Right? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Like as long as they as long as they realize it, right, Chris? Yeah, yeah. If yeah. they see a point for it, they're probably gonna be okay doing it. Before we wrap up, guys, one I had two really last questions. The first one is I think you you talked about earlier, but I just want to harp on it one more time. Is is flow can flow be achieved in groups? So if I'm working in a language setting oh, yeah. with a group of three or four people and we're doing a task planning your next birthday party, for example. Can the three or four of us in my group all be in flow at the same time? Absolutely, yes. There's research on that that says that group flow experiences are particularly powerful, especially when there's a good vibe, when there's good dynamics uh, among the people who are in that group and that people in a group can feed off of each other. But at the same time, everyone's different. There's people who hate group work. It could be because they're really, really introverted, but it, it could be because they just don't vibe with the people in their class because of their personalities, because of their interests, because they have a very different learning style or a very different language level. There could, there could be all different reasons that students don't like group work. And as a result, I shouldn't use the word like, but, but, but don't feel they benefit from group work. And as a result, don't get flow out of it. But yes, in theory, uh, group work is good for flow, provided that there is good group cohesion, or and that they at least see a point for doing what they're doing. And then last one, last one for me is on the teacher side, so teacher education side, um, based on on flow and its conduciveness to learning, language learning specifically, and task based learning. You know, a lot of training programs for language teachers focus kind of on the opposite on very rigid planning and, and, and grammar and, and these kinds of things. So if you were in charge of kind of advocating for, for teacher education, both at a, at a you know, very entry level and then just on a development scope, you know, as we go through our careers as language teachers, how would you integrate flow into that process or the concept of flow? I teach, I teach classes for language teachers and language teachers to, teachers to be. Uh, in my in my current job, and I do include a unit specifically on flow uh, in some of my classes, and it's contextualized with units on other emotional aspects of language learning, like motivation, like anxiety, like self-efficacy, and also with. I think this is a different course. I sometimes mix courses together in my in, in my mind with task-based teaching and project-based learning. And when I give students feedback on lessons or when I give teachers feedback on uh, lessons I've seen or lessons I've heard about, the things that I keep coming back to are generally, I would like to see more open-ended activities uh, because these activities are more likely to be interesting or useful uh, and more likely to be authentic, to produce authentic, to produce uh, realistic, meaningful uh, languages, and prepare students as a result for the real world. And going with that, I often find myself saying, "I want to see more authentic materials or non-learner-centered materials, as in materials that are made for fluent speakers." 
by fluent speakers rather than uh, by whoever it might be for language learners. So those are pretty much the two things that I keep coming back to when I comment on lessons or teaching. I don't usually talk about flow except when I'm in a more theoretical class, but I'm sure you might see, you might see some themes there that the things that I'm telling them I'd like to see are things that are likely to favor flow, even though I'm not using the word flow. I try to keep it more concrete, at least in certain classes. Sounds great, yeah. More authentic materials and more open-ended, real-world focused tasks. And with that, it's been about an hour, but I think we were in the flow, Chris, because it doesn't seem like it was an hour. I didn't, I didn't notice. <laughs> time I flew. No yeah. time oh, wait, now I know because I just looked, but before. <laughs> Uh, well, Chris, thank you, thank you so much for joining us today. This was this was enlightening. We'll have to have you back to to talk more about flow because the research, as I understand it, keeps keeps coming, and it's it's relatively a new field in language learning. So I'm sure there's more that's going to come out coming out. So we'd love to have you back. Oh, there will be, there will be more. I guarantee. Uh, so thanks again, Chris. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Ready to take control of your education? You're in the right place. Teaching, professional development, learning. Expand your world with Learn Your English.